too many of us, there are now 35 million people and counting, are still ignorant of this history. I'm Paul Kennedy. Welcome to Ideas. And the history poet George Eliot Clark says Canadians are ignorant of? Slavery. It's a commonly held belief in Canada. The slavery practice during the 17th to 19th centuries was the sinister business of other nations. Our country, for the most part, was the land of freedom for blacks. But this would be false, according to historians like Afua Cooper. Yes, there were a few free blacks at the beginning of European colonization. But by and large, from 1628 onward, the dominant condition for black people was one of enslavement. Enslavement, trade in human beings, took place in the birthplace of Canada. And slavery is important in the history of black people in this country and in the history of blackness. Because when you are looking at our presence in Canada, then you're more or less talking about a presence of enslavement. The true extent of slavery in Canada is absent from our history books, our museums, our collective narrative. Far from a handful of slaves owned by British loyalists, thousands of African and Indigenous people were enslaved for 200 years. We are all the ears of the trauma of slavery. For every white person who thinks that a black person is a threat and a danger, who's probably better off dead or incarcerated, that person's reflecting psychology that was perpetrated in order to maintain slavery. In many ways, our societies economically, and especially in terms of the justice system, still maintain unconsciously the psychologies and politics of enslavement. We're calling today's program Canada's Slavery Secret, the whitewashing of 200 years of enslavement. It's the first in a two-part series on slavery and its aftermath by contributor Kyle G. Brown. And a warning, this program has some offensive language reflecting the historical context. If you talk to anyone about slavery in Canada, they'll likely evoke the Underground Railroad, the famed network of activists who provided safe houses and helped slaves find freedom. It remains a real and important part of Canada's history, but omits a two-century-old slave trade that's also part of our history. Charmaine Nelson is Professor of Art History at McGill University in Montreal. The Underground Railroad was about 30 years. So the British abolished slavery in all of their empire, including what becomes Canada, in 1833 by an act of parliament. And then the American Civil War breaks down in 1861. It's just that window of time where African Americans are fleeing north. Okay, so 30 years. Canadian slavery transpires over 200 plus years. So what does it take? We got to think about this. What does it take to erase 200 years of history from the collective consciousness of a nation, but to enshrine three decades? I must admit, I was also in the dark about a lot of this history. And half my family is from Jamaica, which was a slave society for generations. The late Quebec historian Marcel Trudel identified some 4,200 slaves in New France alone. But he and other historians say the number is undoubtedly much higher. From families separated and sold at auction blocks at Halifax Harbour to enslaved women raped in Ontario, their children 
born into bondage. It's a long and brutal story. And yet history textbooks have all but ignored it. How is it that over two centuries, so many people could be enslaved and yet leave so little trace? Their very existence buried. I'm on a bus heading from Montreal an hour south to the Benoit family farm, just outside the village of Saint-Armand. With me are activists, volunteers and regular people, mostly African-Canadians. The Black Coalition of Quebec has organized the trip to an unmarked mass grave for slaves. About 230 years ago, this land was owned by Philip Luke, a loyalist who arrived here in the early 1780s and was awarded more than 3,000 acres by the British. So this is the family name of the Luke that we know came up here from Albany, New York State with some slaves, some of his slaves. He was a loyalist. Lay historian Michael Farkas is leading the tour. And a, quite a uh, quite prominent uh, person in Saint-Armand. And his sons and so on, actually, there's, a, there's some Luke that actually were mayor at one point. Thousands of loyalists fled north to what is now Canada, many arriving with their human property. Some slaves were promised freedom, but a number remained in bondage, like those owned by the Lukes. We follow Michael through tall grass over rolling fields to the edge of a forest. Before us, a half-dozen dilapidated tombstones are fenced off. The family burial plot. That's got all the Luke family with, you can see still 1789 to 1840. Right. It's like, it's vintage. And then, and you still see that they have tombs. But is this a cemetery where, where slaves were buried? No, no. That... Michael leads us to a spot 10 minutes away, to a boulder in the shape of a large whale. Since the late 1770s, it's been known as Nigger Rock a burial ground for the slaves owned by the Luke family. In 2015, a Quebec commission stripped it of the controversial title, a decision opposed by the Black Coalition of Quebec, who say erasing the name is part of a pattern of burying the uglier aspects of our history. A strong wind picks up as we gather in front of the rock. There's no indication of anything sacred buried here. It's just the rock and there's no tombs. And there's no sign, one that Red Negro Cemetery was removed. But that's not the only thing missing. Well, we know that they're buried there, we know black people are buried there. They were buried there, where are the bones? That's the big question. In the early 1950s, Clément Benoit, the father of the current owner, began plowing the land near the rock. Something got caught under his tractor, forcing the farmer to stop. Human bones. He found the bones and uh, he tossed them aside somewhere without really paying attention where he did or not really. So it's kind of a mystery and that, that's a damn shame because those bones could tell us so much. And those were the remains of former slaves? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Former town councillor Marielle Cartier is also at the farm that day and joins our conversation. They did not have the title of slaves? No, because slavery was not allowed here. But he came here with his slaves. 
Yes, he came here, but as such, they were automatically freed. I can't swear to you that it did not take place. I wasn't aware of it. I always thought there weren't any slaves here. No one here was considered a slave. Because as far as you're concerned, there were no slaves here? No. Never? No. Cartier is not the only person to contest the idea that slavery occurred in Canada. Despite historical evidence, many Canadians remain unaware or in denial. Afua Cooper is chair of Black Canadian Studies at Dalhousie University in Halifax. I mean, slavery is probably Canada's best kept secret. And many Canadians, obviously not all, will continue to deny the fact that slavery existed in Canada, or diminish it, or minimize it, or don't play it. This points to a systemic situation, denying slavery or minimizing this phenomenon or the practice of slavery in Canada, again points to the erasure of blackness. It's a very interesting situation because black people, because of our physicality, we are visible. You can't miss a black person unless they look white. But by and large, we are visible. On the other hand, in terms of black people's insertion into historiography, into scholarship, into consciousness, we are invisible. So when people continue to deny that slavery exists in, in this country for over 200 years, it points to the systemic erasure of blackness in this country and the refusal to deal with the black presence in this country. There is perhaps no greater symbol of erasure than an unmarked grave. Standing before the rock, Haitian-born Marie Margot Charlemagne is moved to tears. There was no God. There was no one to save them. My Lord, why? Why did they have to suffer? Why did this happen? My God. In 1688, colonial officials petitioned King Louis XIV for slaves. Laborers and domestics are so scarce and so extraordinarily expensive in Canada that it ruins everyone who attempts any enterprise. The best remedy would be to have Negro slaves. European settlers envied their compatriots in the Caribbean who were growing wealthy from the use of forced labor. A reply on behalf of the king arrived several months later. His Majesty is pleased to state that he consents to such importation of Negroes as they propose, but he must, at the same time, warn them that Negroes may die in Canada because of the difference of the climate there. This warning being needed so that the people not take on large expenditures, which may in due course prove useless. But by then, the Nine Years' War had broken out in Europe. 
and the fledgling colony's demands for free labour was not the king's top priority. It took another two decades before slaves were brought to New France in larger numbers. In 1709, an ordinance was read out in Quebec City, Trois-Rivières and Montreal. We, at His Majesty's pleasure, order that all pani, a colonial term for indigenous people, and Negroes who have been bought and who shall be bought hereafter, shall belong in full ownership to those who bought them as their slaves, and we hereby forbid said Pani and Negroes to leave their masters and anyone else to tempt them away under penalty of a fine of 50 livres. While indigenous people were enslaved by the early European settlers, prior to the colonists' arrival, First Nations also had slaves. Brett Rushforth is Associate Professor and Chair of the History Department at the University of Oregon. One of the fundamental differences between this indigenous practice of slavery and the European practice of chattel slavery that is much better known is that it wasn't meant to be uh, permanent and it wasn't meant to be inherited. And it really wasn't about the production of wealth. It wasn't about the production of commodities. Instead, it was about the production of kinship and the production of a stronger in-group. So where Europeans spent a lot of energy policing the exit routes from slavery, making sure that a slave would remain a slave as long as possible, and that if they ever became anything other than a slave, they would remain subordinate within that society through racial restrictions. Uh, that didn't happen at all in indigenous societies. Instead, there was a forced assimilation. And the intent was, in fact, to make them assimilate into that culture as much as possible. And that made it fundamentally different from European slavery in that regard. The Europeans had kind of an opposite approach to that, and that was to perpetuate the slave status. And the daily routine violence of European slavery was much, much greater. The slavery practiced by colonists was a commercial affair. Merchants bought and sold slaves. Some families went into debt, buying slaves to cook, clean and mind their children, or to work the fields. Many slaves were highly skilled and worked as blacksmiths, barbers, masons and cobblers. In the 1700s, amidst growing demand for forced labour, French slave raids on First Nations brought violent reprisals. Increasingly, they sought the labour of Africans, who were isolated and posed no such threat. Once here, they led lives of servitude and brutality. Afua Cooper making life, quote-unquote, civilized for the pioneers, the European settlers, cutting down trees, making the boats, looking after their children, planting up the farm, providing the labor, providing the unpaid labor for two and a half centuries. And this is what needs to be acknowledged in Canada. We don't want people telling us, well, you know, it was mild because they ate beef or chicken or what have you. We're talking about, within these Canadian colonies or provinces, enslaved Africans who were murdered, who were whipped, who were castrated, who were raped, who had all kinds of violence committed upon their bodies under bondage. 
The first known African-born slave in Canada was Olivier Lejeune. At least that's the name given by a Jesuit missionary who bought the boy at the age of six or seven in 1629. It's thought he was born in Madagascar, but little else is known about Lejeune, his real name, his parents, or how many times he was bought and sold. We do know he died in Quebec City in 1654. Written accounts of slaves' lives are rare, but so-called fugitive slave ads provide a glimpse. Quebec Gazette, the 6th of March, 1787. Wanted, runaway slave. Ran away from the subscribers between the hours of 7 and 8 o'clock yesterday evening. A Negro wench named Bet, about 18 years old, middle stature, speaks the English, French, and German languages well, was big with child and within a few days of her time. Whoever will apprehend said negress and secure her return shall be paid a reward of $20 and all reasonable expenses. Any person who may harbor or conceal the said negress will be prosecuted to the rigor of the law. The teen, Bet, most likely ran away to save her unborn child from enslavement. Charmaine Nelson. Fugitive slave ads were precisely what they sound like. They're ads placed by slave owners when an enslaved person would run away. And you find these ads anywhere across the Americas where slavery existed and printing presses existed, which tells you what? That enslaved people were resisting everywhere. Quebec Gazette, 29th of January, 1778. Ran away from the printing office in Quebec on Sunday night, the 25th. A Negro lad named Joe, born in Africa, about 20 years of age, about five feet and a half high, full round face, a little marked with the smallpox, speaks English and French tolerably. He had on, when he went away, a new green fur cap, a blue suit of clothes, a pair of grey stockings, and Canadian moccasins. All persons are hereby forewarned from harbouring or aiding him to escape, as they may depend on being prosecuted to the utmost rigour of the law, and whoever will give information where he is harboured or bring him back shall have $8 reward from the printer. Joe was enslaved by the publisher of the Quebec Gazette, William Brown. And Joe worked on the presses. He would have seen the so-called fugitive ads. But that didn't stop him from trying to escape repeatedly. And each time he was recaptured, he was jailed, whipped and enslaved again. In reading, just studying the fugitive slave ads and the different types of um, archival documents around them, like ledgers, letters, etc., it becomes clear to me that the average enslaved person would have suffered from what we call today mental health issues. They could, they could not. It was impossible that they not suffer from that. Just in terms of the indiscriminate nature of violence and the fact that you're always under surveillance. Like you, even if you're not always being watched, you, the whole slave system is set up to make you think you're always being watched, if you get me. So, for instance, in the Fugitive Slave ads, sometimes they just don't say, oh, you know, Joe ran away on Saturday, December 5th, for instance. They'll say he ran away between 8 and 9 in the morning. How do you know that's when the guy escaped unless you're watching him all the time? Brett Rushforth. Enslaved people in New France, in Montreal, Quebec City, and other French settlements, they were deprived of food. They slept on pallets on the floor. There are cases where they were assigned to eat rancid leftovers rather than the actual food that was reserved for the family. So there were aspects of it that were very violent. But there was a great deal more of independent movement that was allowed, partly because much of the slavery in New France was urban. 
And so to do the tasks that they had to do, many of them had to move around without a great deal of sort of minute-to-minute surveillance by their master. So they might sell vegetables at the market. They might load a canoe from a warehouse, these various kind of tasks. And at the moment of doing that, they would sort of be on their own. But what I found in the court documents is that enslaved people were being watched by New France colonists. They were being surveilled by each other. There was sort of this shared awareness of whose slave that was and what they were doing. And when something went wrong, people came out of the woodwork and said, oh, well, I saw them doing X or I saw them doing Y. And they knew exactly to whom they belonged. And so there was a a surveillance system that was informal, but it was highly effective because it was very rare for an enslaved person in Montreal or other places in New France to be able to get away from the system, to run, to be able to do a lot of things out of the view uh, of their neighbors. As for Joel, after six recorded attempts of his escapes, the records say nothing more. Fugitive ads only record the quote-unquote successful escapes, meaning you had to escape for a certain amount of time. The owner had to know it and the owner had to want to place the ad. So if they catch you too soon or if they give up on catching you at all, then there is no ad. So with Joe, he could escape 10 times, but there's documentation of six times. But Joe, Joe's ad lists him as, as African-born. So how does he end up in Quebec City? The ships could not make it from Africa to to Canada. So we know then that Joe first would have been initially at least enslaved in a place in the southern parts of the Americas, if you get me. So so there are people too who are experiencing two displacements and I've theorized this this concept called the second middle passage because we really don't think about the ships that would have come up to Canada from the Caribbean. Right, those same ships I just mentioned that would have primary cargoes of of plantation-produced crops and secondary cargoes of enslaved people. In history books that do acknowledge slavery in colonial Canada, there's a tendency to minimize its brutality. Marcel Trudel, the great historian of early New France, described it as a familial system, and it's really not that. It's cruel, and it was violent, and it was deadly. Marcel Trudel's book. L'Esclavage au Canada Francais was published in 1960. It may have understated the conditions endured by slaves, but it was a groundbreaking work. The book broke from years of heroic tales of swashbuckling European explorers and instead told of those they enslaved. But it was given a lukewarm reception and took more than 50 years for it to be translated into English. So in New France, enslaved people suffered, there's no doubt. If you look at the statistics... Nearly three-fourths of them died by the age of 20. So this is not a pleasant system. This is not a humane system. Charmaine Nelson. The other thing, too, about this kinder, gentler myth, which I think we really have to just explode because it's just horribly false, is we have to think about what it would have been like for an enslaved person to live out their life in a place like Montreal, Quebec City, or Halifax, where they're living in isolation from their own community, and that's a linguistic community, a cultural community, a spiritual community. So people who would actually survive the Middle Passage, and then they've got dropped, let's say, so you get yanked out of Africa, you get dropped in a place like Barbados. And then for some reason, you get yanked out of Barbados, and someone puts you on a ship and sends you to Quebec City. Like, what the heck did that feel like, right? Because you would have established, in many cases then, a community in the plantation in Barbados, 
And whether or not slavery was hellish there, you had a family, you had elders, you had a community, which then you were removed again from. So you have that community. Then you have African-Americans who are being sold from the States into Canada. Then you have people who are African-Canadian or born in Canada. So what I'm saying here is that isolation and trauma as separation from culture and yourself in part would manifest because we can't even assume that these enslaved people could speak to each other. Right. Some of them are speaking Spanish, some French, some Dutch, some English, some an African language that they remember. So what does that look like? What does it feel like? And also, too, in the Caribbean, you have things called, quote unquote, Negro villages. So slavery is to the extent that the enslavers actually had to create small communities, like small cities for the enslaved, because you could have like 500, 600, 1,000 enslaved people on one plantation. So as horrible as slavery was, again, in the tropical regimes, you know someone who speaks your language. You can find someone who remembers your spirituality, right? In Canada, that is not a given at all. And many times you're living in the home or on the property of the person who's enslaved you in isolation from any other black people or indigenous people who might be able to aid and comfort you. So we really have to think about, too, what suffering is in these different contexts. The notion of a gentler form of bondage remained unchallenged for decades until historians started to look more closely. Records such as letters, diaries and runaway ads provide evidence of something else. And what they also reveal is the brutal nature of slave owners, because the slave owners were not afraid to actually list the marks, the scars, the deformities of the enslaved people's bodies, many of which came from from them, from being whipped, from being branded, from losing digits, fingers, toes, etc., due to really horrendous labor conditions. So this idea that slavery was gentler and kinder in Canada, it doesn't bear out in, in the archive. The regime of cruelty and corporal punishment is widely recognized in the U.S. In Canada, Charmaine Nelson says there's no shortage of archives available. What's lacking are scholars to examine them. This, she says, effectively suppresses histories of Canadian slavery. Our histories. George Eliot Clark, poet and professor of Canadian literature at University of Toronto. So I like to point out to folks, I'm only fifth generation out of slavery. But in my own family, my direct lineage, I only have to go back five generations to my great-grandfather, counting myself as a generation, going back to 1873. It's not that long ago. And there he was, the son of of slaves. So if I go back one more generation to his parents, my great-grandfather's parents, they were slaves, for crying out loud. So slavery is a living presence in my life, in my lineage. Not in my living memory, of course, and I'm glad it's not in my own personal living memory. But again, I don't have to go back very far to uh, rub shoulders with ancestors who were directly related to slavery and escaped from slavery. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on the CBC Radio app, on Sirius XM, and at cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can also sign up for our podcasts. Today's program, Canada's Slavery Secret, the whitewashing of 200 years of enslavement. A growing number of historians, many of them African-Canadian, have unearthed startling details about enslavement in the birthplace of Canada. This is the first in a two-part series on slavery and its aftermath by contributor Kyle G. Brown. 
And as a bonus, we have commissioned two poems for this series by poet George Eliot Clark. You can hear them at our website. I'm on a train heading out of Toronto with artist and activist Camille Turner. So we're on our way to Windsor. We're going to visit the Bobby House Museum, where I did a residency looking at the history of slavery in Canada. The Bobbies were one of Windsor's founding families, wealthy, French-Canadian and Catholic. The home was originally built by François Bobby. François was an officer for the British forces, a magistrate, prominent politician and slave owner. And the Bobby House is really significant because it's one of the few black geographies where we know through archival evidence that there were enslaved people present. We're here at um, Francois Bobby House, which is the museum, community museum of Windsor. Shall we go in? Sure. So here we are in the basement and on one side we have behind a glass case muskets and pistols from the 19th century and over here a large exposed brick fireplace. And this is probably where the people that were enslaved would be toiling away, cooking the meals for the family and, you know, doing all kinds of work, making candles, making soap, you know, boiling lard, all kinds of things that they'd be doing right here. At the museum, you can find lots of literature about the Babi family, but little mention of the African and indigenous people they enslaved. Camille Turner was trying to find out more about the slaves living at the Babi house. Word of her work spread in Windsor, including to people whose ancestors were also slave owners. So one of the things that happened when, as we were, as I was doing my residency and I was working with Alana Bartol, we did a lot of research and people were interested. People came and they, they gave us research that they had. Ordinary, people from the community. Yeah, ordinary citizens. And one of the people that came gave us a bill of sale of an indigenous slave that had been owned by their family. By their own ancestors. By their own ancestors. And then he realized it was actually the ownership of this person. And at first he didn't know what this document was. Um, he thought it was a bill of sale for something that was um, sold to an indigenous person. But he realized after a while that it was the person him, themselves that was being sold. So it's a really hard document to own. And he wanted to give this to an institution, but so far no museum seemed to be interested in, in having it. On the top floor of the sprawling home, there's a small library. In its collection, two books on slavery by the late Quebec historian Marcel Trudel. Ah, so here we are, Canada's Forgotten Slaves and Dictionnaire des Esclaves et de leurs propriétaires au Canada français. So his Dictionary of Slaves yeah, and their owners in French Canada. A really rare book, really difficult to find and very expensive. So here we have a number of the names of the people who were enslaved by the Bobby family, starting with Françoise, Marie, and beside the names, of course, you have a brief description, mulatresse, mixed-race woman, or nègre, 
So as we can see, a lot of these people are indigenous people, some of them from Africa via the U.S., and yet all of them have classic French forenames. Exactly. And it's interesting how people came to be here as well. Some of them came from the U.S., but some of them may have, may have come from the Caribbean, from other Dutch, Portuguese, all kinds of different origins. You see in the ads, for instance, you see that they speak all kinds of different languages. You see Dutch, French, German. It was a very global trade. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen is what I count here. So, at least seventeen people who were enslaved by the Babi family. Mm-hmm. That we know about, because what Trudel was doing was going to all the different churches and basically looking to see who was registered as being baptized. So what is interesting to me about this book is if you look at the names in this book, if you look at the names of the owners, you'll see the very same names on the street, like Rayom is a street, you know, Askin. Streets with the names of the slave owners, but not the slaves. So along with the artist Alana Bartol, she created a walking performance piece called The Landscape of Forgetting. And we went through the streets and told the stories of people who were enslaved in this town and called their names and asked people to join us in calling their names and and remembering them. Saying it simply out loud. Just saying their names, yeah. Francois Lyon. And even though now, because of the work that we've done, there is a section on the French settlement and slavery Their names are not a part of this. Marie. Jacques. There's nothing about who they were as people, who they were as humans. And so that's what we wanted to do, is just just the simple act of saying their names, to bring them into the present and to acknowledge that they're here. Genevieve. Therese. Rosalie. Jacques What's striking is that we found the names of people who were owned by one single family. And this is a very thick book containing numerous other families, wealthy families, in French Canada alone. Mm -hmm. And one can only imagine the number of people enslaved by these wealthy families dotted throughout what is now called Canada. Yeah, exactly. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And I hear sometimes people bending about the 4,200 enslaved people that Trudel found, but that is not all of them. That's only in the French territories that he looked at. It's only the number of people who were officially uh, confirmed as having been enslaved, simply because these were the people for whom he could find official uh, registries, they had been baptized and all the rest of it. Exactly, and even though they've been baptized, look at this page here. Look at the names. Anonymous. Yeah. Anonymous across the pages. Yeah. Anonyme Panise, Anonyme Panise, uh, belonging to Jean Pelado, belonging to uh, Rene Bourassa. Um, yeah, and it just goes on for pages. 
Yeah, so it's 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 interesting. They didn't even bother to name these people. And just how many slaves existed in colonial Canada is difficult to determine. Marcel Trudel, as we've mentioned, was able to officially identify 4,200 in New France alone. But he and others agree the actual number was much higher throughout colonial Canada. Brett Rushforth. There are many ways that the records that survive undercount the number of slaves. One is the simple matter of terminology. What do you call an enslaved native person in New France, in uh, early British Canada after the War of the Conquest? Sometimes they were called pani, but sometimes they were just said to be part of the household. Sometimes they were said to be adopted. And so these various euphemisms for identifying these people in the records made it very difficult to see what their actual status was. Another is that even to know anybody's existence on an individual level, it was mostly reliant on Catholic parish registers, which were quite complete for the French period, less so for the, the British period. But they obviously count only those that were Catholic. And so any enslaved people who were not baptized don't show up there. Uh, court records is a similar thing. It just has to be a coincidence of an enslaved person being at the wrong place at the wrong time, witnessing a crime or something like that. And the final is that there are a great many incentives to hide the presence of these enslaved people. There are taxes that are assessed on the heads of enslaved people. There is also a sort of legal ambiguity to the status of some of these people. So, for example, if Canadians have been at war with the Fox Indians and then they sign a peace treaty, that peace treaty should mean that all of the captives of the Fox Nation should be released. But people didn't want to release their slaves. And so they would call them by other names. They would call them Pani. They would say they were part of the family. Or they would just simply hide that they existed at all. So it ranges broadly from records that don't survive to ambiguous terminology used in the records to outright efforts to hide and conceal uh, the presence of those enslaved people within Canada. Hello, Melissa. Hi. I should pause here to explain that a senior researcher at the museum had agreed to an interview. But we arrived to discover that the collections assistant would instead field my questions. Okay, so um, my name is Melissa Phillips, and I'm the collections assistant here at Museum Windsor. The Bobbies, you know, they were ambitious. They delved into every little thing. They were in government. They were fur traders. They were interpreters. They, they had their hands in, like, every single pot. So what about the people they brought with them? They brought a number of slaves with them or, or did they acquire some of them here in, once they were in what was then known as Upper Canada? Um, with that, I haven't really done too much research into, um, so I can't really speak to that. I think in the sense from what little research we have done that... Um, they're probably something that they acquired here because they happened to move around a lot. Like when Jacques Duperon first came from France, he settled in Quebec, did fur trading there, and then wandered down into Ohio Valley region and then came to here. So there's a lot of moving moving around. And as we noticed in, in this dictionary, we read that a number of the people who were enslaved by the Bobby family were actually indigenous peoples. 
Uh, do we have any idea as to how they did this, how, how they were acquired? You know, I haven't done any research on it, so I can't. It's something that we don't know. One of those things you sort of need a time machine to sort of go back and figure it out. You and your colleagues have done research on the Babi family. Why is no one that terribly curious about the people who were enslaved by them? Um, I think because for the most part, we focused on like the genealogy part. So not really delving so much into their everyday lives and everyday home life, more along the lines of, okay, which family members go to this tree and stuff like that. So we've, it's more genealogically based research that, that we've done on them. In this book, we count no fewer than 17 people mm -hmm. enslaved by the Babi family. Has it occurred to no one to find out more about them? Um, I guess it probably hasn't. It's just, um, for the most part, until we found this book, we really didn't know about them and then now that we have the names we just haven't really had a chance to look into it much further um, and so maybe one day somebody will and it will be great um, but um, for now and I think for the most part I mean they were enslaved but I think they were also like more domestic servants and so more sort of part of the family like nannies and stuff like that that um, they sort of just seemed maybe part of the family to say the enslaved were part of the family obscures the true nature of bondage servants panis negroes are all euphemisms for slaves in the museum, for instance, they talk about slavery, they name some of the slave owners, but they never named any of the enslaved people. They never told any of their stories. It's as if they did not really believe that they were people. And they had stories, and they were worth um, talking about. We leave the museum, learning nothing of the 17 slaves belonging to the Babi family, their lives reduced to numbers and invented names. As part of our expansion, we do have a section in our new permanent exhibit on the history of Windsor that does, it sort of talks about slavery and the Underground Railroad. It is very, like, limited text just because of the resources available. Um, Where is that? However, there is, Where is something that? there. It's over at the Chimchuck Museum. Okay. Melissa Phillips directs us to a sister museum. We're here for the museum. Okay, so it's $5 for adults, $4 for students. Okay. Walking the spacious halls of Chimchuk Museum, Camille and I practically had the place to ourselves. So here we are in the wing that's devoted to the history of slavery. And it reads here, Windsor and the Underground Railroad. It's a plaque on a wall 
in a kind of a makeshift alley, very dark and narrow. And on the plaque it reads, millions of people of African descent were enslaved in North America until the mid-1800s. Slavery existed in Canada as well as the United States, but it was restricted in Upper Canada, Ontario, starting in 1793, and abolished in British North America, i.e. Canada, in 1834. It goes on to name some of the families that own slaves and says that tens of thousands of enslaved people risked their lives to escape to freedom in Canada until slavery was finally outlawed in the U.S. in 18... And it's interesting, This what one of the things that this, this play does not talk about at all, you know, it paints Canada as a safe haven. There was a growing number of people that had to escape from Canada into the northern United States. You heard right. Slaves escaped in both directions. Not only did they escape from the United States into Canada, enslaved people from Canada escaped into the United States. By the 1790s, several states had passed anti-slavery legislation, long before Upper Canada did. So as soon as they crossed the border, they crossed into freedom. So people from Canada crossed into freedom by going across the border into America. And they don't talk about that at all. And while in 1793 Upper Canada banned importing slaves, those already enslaved would remain the property of their masters for life. Or they could be resold, and those born in bondage would not be liberated until their 25th birthday. It was a far cry from abolition. That's perhaps because several members of the Upper Canada government, like François Babi, were slave owners themselves. Similar opposition also blocked abolition attempts in Lower Canada present-day Quebec. But this is all but absent in textbooks and government history websites. And something else contributed to our silence around slavery. British efforts to woo African Americans to their side during the American War of Independence. George Eliot Clark. Great Britain is involved in a geopolitical contest with the American Republic about who's going to be the dominant Anglo power. And so the whole push towards confederation of the British North American colonies is conducted part and parcel with a propaganda campaign beginning in the 1830s that positions America as the land of slavery and Great Britain, the British Empire, as the land of real liberty. This is extremely important politically, geopolitically, because America was going around the world, especially in South America, saying, kick out those kings and queens, become republics, be like us. Now, this is the real liberty, is getting rid of the monarchs everywhere. Britain, of course, being a monarchy, was quite keen on maintaining monarchies. Even if they were repressive, monarchies, in their mind, were far superior to republics. And one way to prove that republics were evil and bad was to point out that the American Republic was the land of slavery, whereas the British monarchy, defending monarchies everywhere, was the land of the, the, the empire of real liberty. And so, of course, Canada and the Underground Railroad plays into that propaganda campaign beautifully. If you were to ask Canadians for two words that they associate with the history of slavery and Canada, what two words do you think that they will be? <laughs> Afua Cooper. I think it would be the Underground Railroad. <laughs> now, how did you guess that? Oh, <laughs> I just guessed. It's a lucky guess. <laughs> <laughs> and 
because in my questioning and I, I've taken the opportunity to talk with numerous people about this as I've been conducting my research and to a person it seems that unless they're a specialist or, a, or an historian they seem to know only of the Underground Railroad. Now what does that tell Is First of all is that your experience as well and secondly <coughs> what do you think that that says? That's my experience. And what that tells me is Canada has created an image of itself as a doer of goodness and a giver of mercy. And they feel that that's exemplified in the Underground Railroad story. Here, there are these slaves fleeing slavery in the United States. They come to Canada, we welcome them with open arms, they kiss the ground, and they live happily ever after. So that puts Canada in a good light. So of course that's a story they're going to promote. Afua Cooper takes me to the Halifax Harbor to see where slaves shipped up from the Caribbean and the States disembarked. Um, so all along here on Lower Water Street in the 18th century and 19th century would be shops owned by merchants. You could buy anything here, anything that you'd want in a shop. So we are right by the waterfront. As you can see, ships would come in, Halifax, um, Halifax Harbor, it doesn't freeze, it's one of the, the great things about it. It's open all year round. Halifax itself was a center of the West India trade. There was trading links between Nova Scotia, New Brunswick itself, Newfoundland, PEI. But if we just stick to Halifax, ships would go down to the West Indies, bringing up rum, sugar, molasses, um, and enslaved people. Cooper points across the street where seamen and businessmen like Joshua Major bought and sold imported slaves. Joshua Major, for one, it's documented bringing up enslaved people from the British West Indies and selling them here. He sold them in one instance at the store of a man called Major Lookman, right here where they sold black people on the auction block. We head towards the waterfront. So we'll take a shortcut through here. This is the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. We bump into a friend of Afua's, John Henniger Shu, president of the Maritime Heritage Foundation. This is Kyle, he's doing a radio documentary for CBC on slavery in Canada. Oh, you, you have a, you're doing a tour thing. Well, so I leave you. No, no. Come here. I'll introduce you. Oh, okay. This is Paul Martin. Paul Martin. Paul Martin. Yeah. Yes, that Paul Martin. Hello, good to meet you. Hello. Mr. Martin, Kyle Brown. Good to see you. Preach you. Could I just ask you what words come to mind when you think of the history of slavery in Canada? Does anything come to mind? Um, I was um, born and raised in Windsor. Ontario, as was my wife Sheila. Windsor, Chatham, Ontario especially, was really an absolutely essential part of the Underground Railway. And so uh, I think that Southwestern Ontario's role in essentially helping people who are in desperate stages, I think is one that is, is a worthwhile part of our history. And it's the one that we grew up with. But the one thing, do you know what? You, that's that's what I hear Canadians say quite a bit is they they know about the Underground Railroad because they're proud of that part of their history yeah and yet I very seldom meet someone who is aware of the history of slavery as an institution which actually took place in Canada well I I, I, 
I think, I guess I must plead guilty. I did not realize that there was slavery in Canada anywhere. Uh, well, I think Honorable Jean Augustine gave you a copy of my book. Yes, she did. Um, the Hanging of Angelique. Do you yeah, have a copy, Kyle? Yeah. I saw Jean not long ago. Yeah, yeah. Right here. because I wrote on um, Canadian slavery. Yeah. This woman, Marie-Joseph Angelique, was hanged in Montreal in 1734. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. the difference is, though, when, when I was growing up, you hadn't written your and with that, we part company. It was meant to be a simple hello. But the exchange left me wondering how slavery could remain, as Cooper said earlier, Canada's best-kept secret, even to people as well-educated as our former Prime Minister Paul Martin. Charmaine Nelson began teaching art history at McGill University in 2003. Every year, she conducts a survey of her class. The thing I do day one is to poll the students and ask them if anybody in the class knows that slavery transpired in Canada. And of course, a class like this is elective. It's not required. It's this class about slavery and art. So I've never had a Canadian student enter my class on day one knowing that slavery transpired in Canada. But what they all have known about and been taught since grade school, so elementary school, is about the Underground Railroad. So they've been taught that Canada, that white Canadians were abolitionists who saved the African-American slaves from slavery in the South, in America. None of them have known upon entering my class that slavery transpired here. So their minds are blown. So there's a lot, a lot that we need to be teaching and it's not happening Slave owners were not shy about the fact that they thought that some people were enslavable, right? Indigenous people, but primarily Africans. They wrote this stuff down. They left as archives. It's not like it's not there. They were not ashamed. They had the, the diaries, the ledger books, the ship records, the fugitive ads, the sale ads, the auction ads, it's all there. So we have ignored it as academics, as teachers, as just human beings walking around in a nation whose ancestors did this stuff. We've strategically ignored 200 years of our history. On Ideas, you've been listening to the documentary Canada's Slavery Secret, the whitewashing of 200 years of enslavement. This is the first in a two-part series on the hidden history of slavery in Canada and its aftermath by contributor Kyle G. Brown. We have additional material about this series on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, including videos of Canada's former poet laureate George Eliot Clark reading two new poems commissioned for this series. You can also follow Ideas on Facebook and on Twitter. This series is produced by Mary Link. Associate producer Liz Nage. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. I'm Paul Kennedy.